Hello, this is Joel Porter, and welcome to the Motivational Interviewing and Beyond podcast. On behalf of my friend Steve Rolnick, we hope you enjoy this conversation we have around vaccine hesitancy. We were able to get quite a few guests from all around the world with expertise in immunology and vaccinology um, and nutrition and um, diabetes to come on and have a conversation with us about how and why people make the decisions they make when it comes to getting vaccinated. We hope there's something in this for everybody and there's something you can take away into your practice or your supervision or work with, with clients. And please feel free to share it with all your friends and colleagues. So are y'all ready to go? Yeah, fine. Okay, well, welcome everybody. Thanks for, uh, thanks for coming along and whether it's 5 a.m. in the morning or 11 p.m. at night, um, we are very grateful that you would make time to spend with us and hang out and have a conversation on MI and Beyond with uh, myself, Joel Porter, Angela Watkins, Russell Calderwood, and Stephen Rolnick. Um, we have a quite timely conversation that Dr. Rolnick has, uh, has, has put forward and created for us around vaccine hesitancy in this world of COVID. We have some absolutely um, knowledgeable and wonderful guests to share some of the work they're doing and some of the ways they work with people around vaccine hesitancy. Um, and the conversation may take a few turns, um, but we'll just see where it goes as usual. So um, just to introduce myself quickly, I'm Joel Porter. I'm in Gold Coast, Australia. I'm a clinical psychologist um, working in indigenous health and uh, motivational interviewing trainer. And I'll just pass it on down to Russell. Russell, how are you doing tonight? I'm good, Joe. Thanks. Uh, yeah, thanks. I know it's quite late where you are. Just briefly, my name is Russell, and I'm uh, I'm an occupational psychologist by trade, specialising in employment and disability mainly. Um, I'm based here in Cardiff, and I've been uh, a member of of Mint for about five, six years. Hence, my interest in motivational interviewing. Uh, today, what I'll be responsible for is mainly drawing together a panel in the last fifteen minutes. Um, uh, and, and looking for themes throughout the, the, the course of the, 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 the webinar to pull together at the end. So I'll be keeping an eye on the chat box and the Q&A and pulling together it and drawing in some random guests as well. Hopefully some of you will be up for that. Thanks. Steve. Angela. Hi. Um, welcome, everyone. Um, I'm really pleased to be here today. My name is Angela Watkins. I'm based here in Cardiff um, in Wales with Steve and um, we used to work together in Cardiff University and I'm really interested in, in health communications and also coaching so I'll be supporting the webinar here today sharing some special videos with you and um, monitoring the conversation and helping where I can. Brilliant thank you so much Angela. and I'm Steve Rolnick also in Cardiff and uh, looking forward a lot to this webinar which um, all, and we've got a few sideways things happening Joel We've got yes. a couple of, we've even got a video of a real consultation. And um, towards the end, we're going to expand this conversation way beyond the clinical into the world outside. So it's quite a, quite a, 
incredible terrain we're going to cover. But, you know, Joel, how can I put it? I, I, I was thinking about this. I've had this voice in my head um, that's been screaming, you know, whether, whether I'm thinking about a COVID vaccine, the American election, climate change, and the voice is something like this, Joel. It's, no, you can't say that. It's not true. And, well, it, you know, and in truth, yes, they can say that, and they probably will. So how do you speak with people when they say things and you get that kind of response in your mind? Um, how might you, instead of trying to correct their misunderstanding, which, as we'll see, is, is, is going to be a theme today, it's probably more useful to find a way of sharing information. And so that's the question we're going to be addressing today with a focus on COVID vaccine hesitancy, but you can see it's a much wider uh, issue. And we often find that people are feeling ambivalent, actually. Yeah. And so that's where motivational interview comes in and how you approach the conversation makes a difference. Yeah. I don't know. Does that make sense, Joel? Yeah, absolutely, Steve. I mean, one of the things I've been thinking about is, you know, we want to have a conversations that avoids the extremes. You know, okay. we don't we don't want to get too far into um, people that have um, I don't know beliefs around vaccines that may not be true and might border into the fringe of um, of, of conspiracy theories to to say the better word. And also, we want to, you know, we want to also remember that there are people that make informed choices. So, how do you have a conversation in the middle with people who still you have that reaction, that voice comes up and goes, "How can you be? How, how did you come to that conclusion?" Absolutely, That's and although I can't, although I can't see their faces, I know that our, our three special guests in this order: Judith Carpenter, Alessandro Diana, and Aaron Ogagno, are nodding their heads. Mm about what you've just said. I bet you they are. So I think we should dive in and um, perhaps before we do, I can say a word about uh, we're running this webinar on behalf of uh, an organization called Guardians of the National Treasure, which is a project based in a very violent township in Cape Town, South Africa. And we do this, this every webinar. Um, and so what we're doing is asking you to consider clicking the URL, which Angela will put in the uh, chat box from time to time, and asking you to make a contribution. So we're not charging any fees, but in a sense, I feel we're doing this on behalf of this incredible project. And Angela's got a little video, which she sent me just like a few days ago. The fellow's name is Ralph Bovers. And he is running this wonderful gardening, sport, and feeding project in Cape Town. Sadly, in the last couple of months, it's all revolved around feeding people. And we have a brief little video clip here, Angela. Great. Yeah, just to show you, and then she'll put the uh, URL in the chat line. <laughs> 
So we're live in um, Lavender Hill, um, home of the GNT, the Guardians of the National Treasure. There's some food relief for our people, it's food parcels. Um, we thank for starters, we thank the Kirsch Foundation, we thank KPMG, we thank MI and Reunion in Wales, Professor Rolnik, we thank Potential Health Investment, that we can help these families because they're all searching for food and it's important that we help these families. Yes. Brilliant. Thank you, Angela. And uh, I can assure you that any money you donate goes directly to Ralph, with whom we've got very personal contact. 30,000 a day is what they, I th believe it's 30,000 a day that they're feeding at the moment. I might have that figure wrong. Um, and it's a wonderful opportunity to support this wonderful human being, Ralph, and the work that he's doing. So Angela will put the uh, URL in the chat line. And um, have you done that, Angela? Yep. It's there. Brilliant. So please make donations as you see fit. And let's move on. And yeah, no donation is too small. <laughs> Every penny matters when people are right. hungry. It's actually the case. Absolutely sure. We've had, them the We've had them dancing down there when they get to the end of one of our webinars. He's really very, very appreciative. Yeah. Joe. Let's yes. get going. I believe you decided to speak to our first guest. Yes, our friend Judith Carpenter. So Judith, there you are, you magically appear. Hey Judith. Hi. Now it seems like I just talked to you over the weekend, so it's good to see you. <laughs> yeah. um, okay, Judith, do you want to spend just a, a moment just to introduce yourself and the project that you're working on? Sure. Um, so uh, my name is Judith Carpenter. Um, I uh, work in the NHS today. I'm in a clinic, as you can tell. Um, and I do that part time and in diabetes care. And I'm also a motivation interviewing trainer of some many years more than I care to remember. And um, recently, um, a good colleague and friend of all of ours, um, Lynn Williams, approached me around having setting up some really brief training with regard to vaccination hesitancy, specifically actually around initially flu vaccines. And this was for um, um, an NHS trust in the, in the Midlands um, in the UK, who are a real national outlook in terms of their staff having a low rate of take up for flu vaccinations. And that's what we've been doing. So we've been delivering training in that for um, since mm, towards the end of last year. Um, and now it's actually because it's sort of morphed into um, having conversations with people that they're going to be having around not just flu vaccinations, but COVID vaccinations and the vaccination hesitancy that continues to rear its head. So you're working not with the people that are coming in for vaccinations, but the oh. providers, the people that yeah. are administering. Yeah. And what are some of the what are some of the surprises that you're finding? Well, interestingly, staff are um, as hesitant as the as the people they may well then end up vaccinating or the people they're speaking to about vaccinations for a whole host of reasons. Um, so that's been something that's um, been surprising to them. Um, and just the opportunity to use having just more helpful conversations so they can actually 
express some of those concerns, some of which are very founded. Um, certainly over here in, in the UK, um, there's a, a lot of questions about the vaccines in terms of how people are getting them and safety and duration, duration between, between doses. Um, and so, there's, so that they have their own hesitancy. So um, that obviously impacts then their conversations that they're having with other people if they're trying to help them to have helpful considerations of taking vaccines. So you're working with people that are knowledgeable in the in, in the uh, area of immunology, and and it's their work. And these aren't people that you would kind of put in the anti-vaxxer okay. sort of column. These are professionals that are informed, and what you're noticing is they're having their own ambivalence yeah. about vaccination that's coming from information they're coming in, not yeah. from beliefs or ideology. No, not necessarily. And so some of it's, it may be misinformation or just, just changing information. It's not necessarily misinformation, changing information. So these are people, these are other healthcare providers who will be either um, supporting their own patients and, and clients to be considering having vaccinations or actually delivering the vaccinations as part of their vaccination programs. So there is a lot of hesitancy throughout. It ripples throughout. So that ambivalence is pretty strong really. Um, and so what's been quite nice about it is that by default, in terms of doing the training, they're actually discussing their own hesitancy and their own ambivalence. But wow. some of the skills that we've been doing, some really simple, and it's only a two hour session, have been really helpful in, for them to have a conversation with people in a different way, to be able to give people information that's factual information, because more information is coming out on a day by day basis. Um, so that people can give information that's that, that's correct and, and, and factual and to have a sort of structure in order to do that because these folks haven't don't know how to have these conversations necessarily in a different way than they're already doing so it's been it's been incredibly helpful so brief simple and helpful I think just to teach people to do things some some skills that might be useful in a different way are y'all are y'all finding that the the, the professionals that you're working with, they need to find a way to make peace with the ambivalence that they're experiencing in order to, to work with the people that are coming in for vaccination? Because they may not resolve it, but as a professional, sometimes you gotta find a way to be with your own ambivalence yeah. about, about the choices people make or how you feel about something. Yeah, and I think they're recognizing that for themselves and they may not resolve it and they may decide to or not to have vaccinations. But what they're starting to recognize is how they can not make that influence the decisions that other people are making. And, and the other thing I think is about it's, it's opening the dialogue to have the conversation. I mean, I just as a, on a personal note, I went to have my um, first um, COVID vaccination yesterday. And it was a, a very well-oiled military operation, really, um, um, very, very well organized. There were, at no point could anyone have expressed, could I have a conversation about this here? I'm not sure if I want the vaccination. It was almost, if you've turned up for it, you're obviously going to have it. There was no opportunity not to do right. that. So I think what's happening is some of the conversations that are happening outside of those settings. And they're happening with professionals who are having conversations with people about whether or not they're gonna have vaccination or, or people talking to them. Should I have this vaccination? Is it safe? Will I be protected? What will happen? So people have a lot of hesitancy and angst. Um, and I think that's driven out of some uncertainty. Um, 
And I think it's different to maybe even the flu vaccine with this COVID. Well, it's a different sort of, I mean, as a, as a, as a, um, it's a different sort of ambivalence than the work that I've done in drug and alcohol, where somebody is thinking about changing their drinking and they're kind of working through the things that about the drinking that's helpful or they enjoy versus the things that are causing harm or, or problems in their life. Mm. This is a, a more of a cognitive kind of ambivalence about how do I make the best, the best choice for myself or my yep. family. Absolutely. And I think you're absolutely right, Joel. I think it's really different to the ambivalence that I see in my, um, in my general work um, on a day-to-day -day basis as well. So it's new. I think it's new for all of us. But I think, and what I think people need is the opportunity to have space um, to express how they're feeling. And staff probably need to have some skills to be able to help them have conversations and navigate this arena. Um, and I think that's where some of the MI stuff would re really comes in. And I think it's very useful. Yeah. Well, and yeah, by the time people show up in the clinic and they got their sleeve rolled up, they're, they're you know, they're motivated, so to speak. It's the people outside the door yeah. that might need the, the, the attention. Yeah, absolutely. The absolutely. And, and certainly here, there's a lot of um, angst around people getting vaccinations because obviously we have very high rates of, of, of COVID, as you know, and and it will be interesting to see how that plays out over the t over time and whether that will continue to be at the rate that vaccinations are being delivered and people are accepting them and the uptake that they're having, yeah. you know, whether that continues or not. So it's all, it's a new world, Joe. It's a brave new world with all this stuff. <laughs> Indeed. It's a whole new world. Yeah. Steve, do you have any thoughts? Anything you want to talk with Judith about? Uh, <clears throat> yeah, I wanted to ask Judith a couple of things. It Sounds like incredible work that you and Lynn Williams are doing. Um, I note, I note that you know people outside the door is an issue, and I think we'll probably return to that. Certainly at the end of this webinar, towards the end, we will. But Judith, I'm wondering, you know, when you when you're with these practitioners, beyond helping them say what they think and feel about this, uh, and listening to them and giving them space. What is it that you're saying, teaching them? You know, what framework are you using as a way of helping them have a constructive conversation? So, um, yeah, so we, we, we just sort of, because we, this was around doing something very brief and very simple, we've just picked out some, some very, um, some core sort of what we will say, sort of core listening skills, Steve. Yeah. Uh, there's something about helping people just to raise the topic um, and to be um, uh, show some empathy and understanding. There's something about supporting people's autonomy, which is really important. Um, and then using the framework that we all know around how we give information that would be helpful when maybe misinformation or people are are, are seeking some some more clarification. Um, and just being just doing those few things, particularly. Um, that these staff haven't necessarily come across before, like lots of healthcare professionals haven't necessarily been um, in, in, in things like MI workshops, just those few skills and that two hours, universally people are saying, this is a really helpful way. Now I know to how to have this conversation in a different way. Yeah, and Judith, um, probably most people on this uh, attending this webinar don't know what that framework is. Would you like to kind of give us a sense of it? 
Okay, <laughs> I can try. But we're teaching people to ask a really, really good questions to open the 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 conversation up, to to not to not um, to avoid the 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 desire to fix it and jump in and tell by being more reflective with responses. Um, to let people know it's their choice to make a whether they have a vaccine or not that they no one can make them do that and they may have some questions and then to use the framework of of ask share ask or elicit provide elicit to share information and ask people what they think of information particularly when it's something that people really are have a lot a lot of concerns about for example why why, why, for example, they may be getting a vaccination um, at a later date than they thought they'd be getting one, for example. And mm. then letting people sort of summarising up, still letting people know it's their right to choose and asking them where they want to go from here. And that's really different because what they would be doing originally would be saying to people, well, it's really important and trying to convince and persuade people that they need to have their vaccination. And this is staff. So this is at the moment, this is this is around getting staff vaccinated. And the reason that the um, trusts are really wanting staff to be vaccinated is to be protecting them, but also protecting people that come into the buildings. So um, that's the sort of framework, if that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And there's, there's different words that people use for this. Ask, offer, ask is what yeah. I'm using at the moment, or elicit, provide, elicit, or yeah. ask, provide, ask, or whatever. It's all same. Uh, semantics around the same thing, really. Yeah, it's the same process. So listen first and clarify what it is they'd most like to know. Provide the information and emphasize choice and autonomy. And then after that, ask them what sense they make of it. Yeah. 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 And then allowing people to not to say, I'm, I'm really not sure. And that's OK. And I think a lot of these professionals feel that they've got to con convince and persuade people that they really should have their vaccination and if they don't they're somehow they've, they've they've failed them but actually um you know leaving the relationship intact enough that people can be willing to come back and talk about it or go away and think about it mm. not necessarily a one-stop decision to be made at that moment in time if someone's uncertain mm. i think judith what you said is just key it's their experience of the interaction yeah that that if you can open somebody up to walk out the door and say, I'll think about that. And they actually go think about it. They'll be much more inclined to come back and say, you know what? I think I've thought about it and I'll do this as opposed to, you know, you guys treated me like a child and like, you know, I was an idiot. So there's no way I'd come back to you. Yes. And that also has impact on the people around them. It has impact on the people they're working with. It has impact on their families, their friends, their community. So I think it's really important. I think we have a moment where we really want to be thinking about how we're supporting people to have these, these conversations. Absolutely. Yeah, and um, I see Margaret Thomas is, is, is commenting in the chat line about, yeah, how am I going to handle in a few months' time younger people who might be feeling more sceptical? Yeah. Um, and I'm sure there's a whole spectrum there, which Joel highlighted right at the beginning. We're not talking about the extreme, you know, uh, 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 COVID denialists. We're talking about people who are very hesitant. And uh, it'll be fascinating to see what uh, uh, Alessandro and Arno have to say about this, because in a different part of the world, in a different language, they've been tackling some of the stuff. So it'll be very interesting to hear to see what continuity there is across this yeah. about how you speak to people. Yeah. Yeah. When I listen, I mean, when I, when I think about what Margaret said, I, I remember something that um, 
that I think that it was Bill in my very first MI training said, he said, you know, it's not you to the group. He said, it's not your job to change anybody. <laughs> it's kind of like your job to provide an opportunity for people to make changes. Yeah. And so when, when you take that weight off your shoulders, that I have to be responsible for making something happen here and you can create an opportunity where people can explore their different thoughts that they have about making a change or taking a vaccine or something like that, then that creates space for them to actually figure out what they actually think about it. Yeah, yeah you know, Judith and, and Joel, listening to the two of you, it sounds quite simple, hmm. what you describe. And, yeah. I, and I know Lynn Williams, and it, it, it would be the same story if Lynn was, was speaking to us. I know she's watching the webinar. And it sounds quite simple when you when you listen to you guys, but I reckon there's a, a whole load of, but that doesn't mean it's easy. Mm. And in the case of these practitioners you're talking about, Judith, their minds and hearts are filled with all a whole mixture of, of, of things that must make it quite difficult to listen to people. I wonder. Yeah, I, I just think that the, the feedback we've had is that it just, it helps them just getting the opportunity to stop and think about this yeah. and using their own experience to sort of drive that thinking and then think about what this is like for other people and then helping them to, to just do a few things. Well, it is, it's been, it's, and creating that curious mindset and that space, Right. Okay. Really, you know, that I just think it just, it, yeah. it, it really helps and it doesn't have to be long trainings. It, we can really help people to be, um, to, to have conversations with people and feel more confident about the conversations they're having. Yeah, because I, I suspect that while there's this military-style operation ongoing now, okay, it won't be, a, it'll just be a matter of months, you know, when the younger people and the more skeptical people that, 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 that uh, Margaret Thomas describes are gonna be having conversations. It might not be in a military, military context of come for your jab. So this is, this is really, um, yeah, it's very helpful. I'm conscious of us approaching the half hour. Yeah. And I have this uh, awareness that Alessandro, our next guest, has to be gone in 20 minutes' time. Joe? Okay. Well, yeah, let's, let's, let's make the most of the time we have. Judith, we'll see you again. Yeah, if, see you soon, guys. And I know you're on your lunch hour, so if you, have, if you can hang yeah. with us, we'd greatly appreciate it. Yeah. yeah. You've got to go very soon, Judith. So thanks so much for your yeah. time. Eh? It's been yeah. fabulous to chat. Yeah, bye. thanks for having me. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye, Judith. Bye-bye. And Ange, thanks for shoving the URL into the uh, chat line. Eh? I see it's still there, so there's no, no need to put it in again. I think without further ado, why don't we, Joel, what do you think? Chat to Alessandro and Arno. Let's introduce both of them. And, yeah, and we, we'll start with, with Alessandro because I know he's got to go. Okay. So Angela will bring both of them on. There's Alessandro. Hi, hello Alessandro. to every, hello to everyone. And we'll wait for Arno. Is he there? Hi. Hi, everyone. Hi, lovely to see you, Arno. Um, look, I don't know how to introduce these guys super briefly because they they're incredible. You know, they I've met them only recently. Um, they're both pediatricians and would probably call themselves vaccinologists. Which is a phrase I never heard about until I met Alessandro. I met Alessandro in Geneva in one beautiful late summer evening under an oak tree. 
and we became friends. And um, so you're both clinicians at the front end of talking to hesitant people. I mean, correct. and Alessandro is in Geneva and Arnaud is in Quebec, but not Montreal. Yes, in Sherbrooke, Sherbrooke in Quebec. In Sherbrooke in Quebec. Okay. Alessandro, if we start with you, what's your story? What happened to you? <laughs> so thank you, Steve, again, to, to give us the opportunity to, to be here. Um, my story. So I am a pediatrician, clinical vaccinologist in Geneva. And I would say that for a long time, I was correcting vaccino-hesitant parents. And as described, uh, usually uh, doctors, they interrupt patient with a wrong information after 50 seconds. I think I was doing better, stopping them after 10 seconds uh, for a very, very long time. Uh, I changed my posture, uh, that's 12 years ago, uh, and use what we call now, of course, motivational interviewing techniques. Back then, I went through neuroscience and metacognition who teaches us what could be all the cognitive bias that we, uh, every one of us uh, can, can, can make and, and be mistaken. So I would say that thanks to this new posture, thanks to motivational interviewing techniques, it just pulled me out of conflict. I'm not in conflict anymore with my vaccino-hesitant patient. So of course, as a vaccinologist, I would favor vaccination as a prevention, a preventive intervention tool, but really, and this is what um, the big difference to me with this new posture, it's a, I really and truly respect the patient who at the end of a conversation, it's not as to be very long, as Judith uh, mentioned, uh, when they tell me, you know what, Dr. Diana, it's fine, all, you, you, you look like a nice doctor, you look very compassionate, but I will not change my mind. And for me, this is okay. And of the most of it, what I have learned is first to listen, just give, them two, three minutes only for the patient, not interrupt them after 50 seconds and ask permission if they need any information. Maybe I would stop here. I don't know if uh, Arno would join on that, but this is the my essentials of my yeah. experience. And it, and it sounds like a shift in you that ran quite deep into your heart. Totally. For me, it was a big, big change, you know. It didn't happen in a weekend, of course, because it was, it was a lot of reflection. I realized that something was wrong with me when I was in this conflict, correcting the, 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 the patient, you know, mm. like, who am I, I mean, to, to tell them what they have to do. So it was a very long process, but very, very happy to, to be where I am now. And it must make you wonder about how to come alongside colleagues who take a more combative approach. Yeah, 
this is the other thing, you know, because I realized that it's not very common, at least here in Switzerland, that you can accept uh, vaccine-hesitant patient. And uh, one of my one of my battle, if I might say, is to you know spread the word. I'm telling to my colleague, listen, guys, I think we were wrong when we were we were um, beating in this way the, the vaccine hesitancy patient. I think there is another way. I'm also surprised to see how among pediatricians and even another professional, healthcare professional, they don't know, Steve, what, do you, what are motivational interviewing techniques. Some, some of them, they look at me and say, what is this? You know, it seems to be, you know, just a two, three thing on the shoulder. Oh, I will motivate you. No, this is a science. Motivational interviewing techniques, to me, it's a really science. I mean, it's a new approach. And I think there is a lot of love to do to spread the knowledge of MIT. And it sounds like you, you, you feel a little bit like an outlier, but a passionate one. Yes. I have been for a very long years. You know, I was working still under the radar. Things now have changed, of course, of COVID. I think now we are back on the scene. Lots of colleagues say, oh, Alex, how do you do with your vaccine hesitancy patient? What should we do? And especially since last year when WHO has declared that vaccine hesitancy is one of the 10 threat health threats in the world. So things are changing now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's an incredibly strong statement. Yeah, I'd I'd heard about that. And I guess that goes beyond beyond COVID to all sorts of other conditions. Yeah. But it sounds like today we are discussing something that's quite important to improve the skillfulness of these conversations. Yeah. One of the things, Alessandro, one of the things I was I was thinking is that, you know, how difficult it can be to see people still trying to push that square peg through the round hole. And when that doesn't work, they get a hammer. <laughs> And it's just, it's almost painful to watch people doing what you were talking about, you know, with your colleagues. And, and, you know, I know that Steve and I both coming from substance abuse work have seen that over and over and over. Yeah. And then there's the the tendency to pass judgment on the person and attribute the problem to being outside of you, outside of the relationship and in them. Yeah. Yeah. and that's where MI started and has remained as a, as, as a, and you know, you see it in everyday life as well, which we'll turn to towards the Absolutely. end. But I, I wonder, Alessandro, what's your sense of the evidence? We have some, uh, well, first of all, I would say I have some evidence from the field, from my yes. field. I yes. mean, those are small numbers. And it's incredible because since I have this new posture. I, I have some data that vaccine or confidence, if I may say, it's my results, if I might talk. Yeah, 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 yeah. Results are definitely better than what were compared to what I was doing before. You okay. know? But in the same time, I have now this incredible position my objective is not for my vaccine hesitant patient to, you know, 
to decide to have the vaccine, and then and then I say, oh, check the accept vaccine. Okay, not at all. You know, yeah, I have this posture. You know, like in motivational interviewing, you you might have. I'm there as a coach. You know, I don't have the pressure, as Joe said, that I have the burden of the responsibility to you to receive the vaccine. My responsibility, if I have one, is to be there as a doctor to coach your, I'm your coach. I can, how can I help you? Yeah. And, and, you know, and if people and some people, they tell me, I don't need Dr. Diana any explanation. We're fine. We're just fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's nevertheless this kind of pressure on you to to kind of prove that you can uh, increase uptake, and so you have to speak one way to the exactly to the policy and 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 the political people. Yeah, but actually with your patients, it's something completely different. Exactly, and then I'm sure Arno will complement on this because you yeah. know he has conducted studying and actually proving with. With, uh, with data that when you have the motivational interviewing approach, you actually may increase vaccine confidence. And I think in healthcare perspective, uh, this is very interesting. I mean, the healthcare authorities should be aware, in my point of view, that this kind of approach can really make a difference uh, in yeah. influencing people's decision. Yeah, we'll chat to Arno in a moment. But Alessandro, what about this, hey? Um, you sound very kind of, when you're with your patients, you sound like you're very settled in your heart that, okay, this is their decision. But what if it's like really urgent, like there's a smallpox outbreak in a small African village, right? <laughs> and you've, you've been flown out there to deal with it, right? I would have thought oh. there's no question in your mind that you really want these people to take the vaccine. No exactly. question, right? Because, yeah. you, you know, how would you handle that? Well, depend on the situation, as you said, yeah. as we mentioned. It's the concept here in motivational interviewing. What about equipoise? Of yeah. course, I can be neutral. Of course, I can respect your decision. But at which extent? And there is a point um, where, of course, I might say to the, to the person, Listen, having said all this, I really think this is very important for your child. Of course, I do that. But I think, that, you know, the intention behind is at least a good intention. Okay, because so you want to remain authentic to yourself. And if you're in exactly. a very difficult situation, you'll be authentic with the patient. But I suspect even in that situation, you would still honor their autonomy. Yes. Yeah. What one of the one of the ways I approach that is if I have something I feel that is necessary for me to say is you know I'm going to share my information with you. What you do with it is up to you. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Very good. Okay. So actually, in truth, in that situation in the smallpox village, um, Alessandro is not in perfect equipoise. He's yeah. really hoping that these people take the vaccine. <laughs> yet somehow is able to put that to one side. Yeah. And so we've got to be careful about using this term equipoise as if it, it's a kind of a stable state that dictates everything. It sounds mm -hmm. like Anna, uh, Alessandro is able to go, okay, that's my view. I might mm -hmm. give some advice, but in my conduct, I'm like this.
You know, Alessandro, we're coming up to uh, the end of this discussion. Is there, is there, and it'll be real fun to see what Arno says and thinks. And we've got a video to show you of, of Arno with a patient. I'm just, Very good. I'm just wondering if there's anything you want to say by way of closing. No, I think we thank you for giving me this, this occasion to express and to rely my story. I would say maybe just at the end, um, what, what we were talking about the, um, in this situation when, you know, I was saying to the patient, I would do it, I would do this. I think I also developed this kind of technique. I wait for the patient to ask me Doctor, what would you do in my position? Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, I yeah. always, I'm waiting for this <laughs> yeah. to happen first. And then I think I can give my advice. Yeah, in an authentic way. Yeah, with in you. an authentic way, yeah. Uh, what a nice way to be, because a lot of people would be fearing that question. Mm -hmm. That their patient or their client would say, what do you think I should do? Mm -hmm. And they'll say, well, it's not up to me. It's your life and you do it, you know, but to have the confidence to be able to speak what you think is, is the best, the best recommendation. Yeah. And usually, you know, when patients, yeah. And when patient feels, you know, comfortable with this kind of uh, uh, conversation with uh, the healthcare professional, they usually get to the point to say, listen, doc, what you would do. You know, Absolutely. I mean, you put everything on my shoulder, but can you please tell me what what you would do? Yeah, and, and Alessandra, we heard this wonderful story last night from our dear colleague and friend Orla Adams, who described being on a COVID ward here in Cardiff, where everyone was very stressed and rushing around, and patients were looking bewildered and scared, and the staff were in a dreadful state. And she noticed this one patient and thought, well. I'm just going to go up and say hello. And she said she went up and she just listened for a couple of minutes. And she said the, the, the impression of this patient became visibly calmer. And then the patient said, would you mind if I speak to my husband? Okay, great. She fixed up the call, spoke to the husband. You know, it wasn't complicated. Yeah. You know, it wasn't complicated. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, Alessandro... Thank you so much. I know you've got to go and you've been a real brother. We'll speak. Thank you soon. so much. Okay, man. Thank you. Okay, bye, Alessandro. It was a pleasure to thank meet you. you thank you. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Hi. Hi, Steve. Hi, how, how, nice, how nice to chat to you. Also knowing that our good friend Pat, Patrick is, is, is alongside you. And I, we might or might not get a chance to speak to Patrick. Perhaps we might at the end. Uh, but I know you and Patrick have been busy in this field. And what's, what's your sense of, of, of this challenge? Yeah, um, so thank you to invite me to this, this webinar. So as you already say, I'm a pediatrician and I work in the pediatric intensive care units. In my experience, if uh, with vaccine-preventable disease was terrifying because I saw children dying from meningitis. And my first experience about uh, vaccinology was to have some children dying from meningitis and asking parents what children are not vaccinated. And I uh, 
the response was terrifying because very often parents said, oh, I don't know, I don't know, I have no information. I don't know there is vaccine, I don't know there is disease. So uh, he, he, there is a, a real problem of lack of information for parents. So I asked myself, how could I manage this lack of information with parents? And when could I give some information to parents? And I had the idea, I, as I am also an anatologist, to give some information at birth, uh, because uh, every parent gets birth in maternity wards. So we could meet them and we could give them some information about immunization. It's two months before the first vaccine, so parents have time to take their decision. There is no pressure. And when I collected a literature review uh, how to give those information, uh, the conclusion were that traditional uh, educational methods often fail to change uh, immunization behavior. Why and, is that? I don't know. But because I think uh, all the studies that were conducted in this field use a traditional way to give some information. So very directive, uh, this is a disease, this is a vaccine, you should vaccinate because. And don't ask parents, uh, what are you concerned about immunization? What information do you need about information? What makes sense for you to take your decision to make uh, your child vaccinated? So I have the idea and thank you, uh, Steve and everybody to uh, to develop motivational interviewing. And I have the idea to, to take the motivational interviewing approach uh, to give those information to parents at birth. So we develop this uh, strategy which called uh, it Promovac uh, 10 years ago. And we test those strategies, so to give information with parents at birth, but using a motivational interviewing approach, because we want that parents could express their fears, their concern about immunization. And uh, in this way, we are able to give them the right information, the information that they need that makes sense for them, for, for them. And as you have presented, we use the ask, offer, demand, etc. approach to the be same sure. As, the same as what Judith described. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Because uh, to my experience, uh, what is really, really important is to uh, parents have lack of information or misinformation, disinformation. And we should correct that. But how correct this information in a partnership and not not in a judgmental way and not uh, trying to say them you are wrong, but how we could change this information, how we could build a new knowledge that makes sense for them to take the decision. Yeah. So it's why we are asking a lot of questions and we are starting with the already knowledge and we try to build with them in a partnership, a new knowledge that makes sense for them to take their decision towards immunization. So as uh, Alessandro said, we are not neutral. At the beginning, we are very clear with parents that we are as healthcare professional in favor of immunization. And uh, we strongly think right. that it's a good thing, but we respect their position. We respect and understand their fears and concerns. We don't judge them. And we are trying to have an open discussion to wow. see how we could move okay. towards an immunization. So we are not in conflict. We are respect the autonomy. And we say to the parents, we're going to respect your decision. It's your decision, it's belonging to you. 
but uh, we are trying to have this conversation if they are uh, agree to have this conversation with them. So wow. we, co we conducted this study uh, in Sherbrooke uh, with more than 1,000 families. And we have some amazing results. Uh, we increase the vaccination intention by 15% in the population. Wow. Uh, we are decrease the vaccine hesitancy score by 40%. Wow. And we are increase the vaccine coverage of infant of 9% during the zero to two years period. So 9%, it seems uh, very few, but with vaccine coverage at 80%, 9%, it's a very high uh, uptake yeah, yes, in vaccine coverage. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So with those amazing results, we conducted randomized control trial in the province of Quebec and also randomized control trial in Canada. And after the most uh, difficult thing was to... Uh, motivate the government that it's a good approach because uh, at a public health perspective, it's very difficult to have a strategy based on an individualized meeting yes. and also to have a strategy based on the respect of the autonomy of the person if you have the goal to have high level of vaccine coverage and you, you want to have goal at a population level. Yes. But what is amazing, and according to my experience, is when you respect the autonomy of the person, uh, it leads to uh, ch change to change more often of position. And the more I respect the autonomy of an hesitant patient, the more often it changes his mind and going to vaccinate. That's an incredible. And, uh, it, it, it's incredible. I, I have lots, maybe I have no time, but a lot of experience of hesitant parents, uh, we have a discussion with me. At the end, I say, okay, you are, you are taking your decision. I know you want the best for your child. I don't will judge you what uh, you are going to decide. And very often, the day after, okay, doc, I'm going to vaccinate. So yeah, it's, it's fascinating. I don't uh, know. In a moment, we're going to look at a video that you've kindly made available to us. Isn't what? it amazing what, what is counterintuitive? right works that you know, the feeling of the more you know the you need to have more control to get the outcome that you want but actually when you give people choice and respect their thoughts and their ideas that it frees them up to make different choices and when you try to restrict it they just push back yeah because with this approach we avoid resistance and reactance and uh, very often only when people say, uh, explain you some disinformation about immunization or something wrong about immunization, if you start to correct themselves at the beginning, they're going to develop reactants. If you listen to them, you don't judge them, and you try to build a trustful relationship, and they feel that you are okay, that someone, he listened to me, he don't judge me, he don't try to correct me. Okay, I, I could be in confidence with him and I'm going to discuss and discuss. And after, you could try to build, to build a new knowledge. And with this new knowledge, the parents will correct himself his misinformation about immunization. Yeah. And that's going okay. to make sense for him. And now with this approach, uh, we, are connect, uh, we are 
starting a provincial public health program in Quebec now in maternity wards. With um, we are trained vaccination counselor that we train uh, in immunization and in motivational interviewing approach. And now in Quebec, every parent at birth receive an edu educational session with a motivational interviewing approach for every children that uh, that uh, birth in Quebec. Wow. So we are starting this program uh, for two years now, and we are evaluate this program, and we have same results uh, as in the uh, randomized control trial. We increase vaccine intention by 12% in the population, decrease vaccine hesitation. We are divided by two, the proportion of very hesitant parents in the population, and we have increased vaccine coverage of six or seven percent at six months of age for infants. Wow. So with wow. this approach, with the respect of the autonomy, we are increased vaccine coverage. So with those data uh, at a public health perspective, it seems now to be uh, a good approach and a successful yeah. approach to, to increase vaccine coverage. So we are very happy to have those data to to, to give the proof of the concept as that motivation approach could lead to increase vaccine uptake, even if we respect the autonomy of the person. Right. And what, you, what it, 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 you clearly probably know the literature better than, than any of us. What's your sense of the literature on vaccine hesitancy? Do, do, do you get the impression that the kind of work you've been doing uh, enhances the literature and vaccine hesitancy. Let's put it that way. Yeah, <clears throat> there is lots of things that we're uh, trying uh, in vaccine hesitancy domain. And uh, um, I think there is lots of solution that could be part of the solution. And I don't say that uh, a motivational interviewing intervention at birth, we're going to solve every problem but it could be also part of the, of the solution. Okay. Um, I, I think uh, because at the opposite of the motivational interviewing approach, there yep. is a mandate and to have mandates about vaccines. And in some uh, countries, there is a vaccine mandates and they have also demonstrated that, that increase vaccine coverage and uh, uh, it could be a solution in an outbreak, yep. outbreak perspective or uh, to increase vaccine coverage. But some studies have already demonstrated that this approach, yes, it's helpful, it's increased vaccine coverage, but also it could increase reactance of the population. It could increase the feeling of persecution. It could increase the, the lack of liberty of freedom. And so uh, it could be after a few years, it could be backfire, but it's uh, it's also strange because some studies have demonstrated also that mandates sometimes reinforce confidence in immunization because people say, oh, if government says that it's mandatory, it's because it's important. So it's, there is a two point of view that could be yeah. possible. Uh, yeah. It's, it's, Got it. I got it. And so, and, and I, do, I must say, I do share it. There's a legitimate public health concern that 
in this instance, for example, with COVID, that as many people as possible get vaccinated. Um, and then it's really important to help the practitioners not translate that directly into practices. You've got to have this vaccine. And that's the interface that, that we're discussing. I don't know. I wonder if we could have a look at your video. And yeah, um, Angela, if you could just give me a chance, one moment to say a couple of things. Have a look at this video and consider what's in Arno's heart. Okay. Consider the pace of it. See if you can make a judgment about how long this lasts without cheating and looking at the time code. What is the pace like? Is it fast pace or a slow pace? Consider the reciprocity and who does most of the talking. And then see if you can spot two things. And they were both highlighted by Alessandro and by Judith. One is listening. Where is Arno listening? Because it's an active expression of curiosity and empathy with this person. Notice how he's not asking too many questions. He's making statements. And the second thing to look out for is this ask, offer, ask framework. See where you see that fit, fitting in. And then we'll, be, we'll debrief you afterwards, Arno, if that's okay. Yeah. But there's lots to look out for you. Thanks, eh, Ange? No probs. Let's get this going. I mean, see if you can remove that little bar at the bottom if it gets more oh, brilliant. Well done. Oh, bonjour, maman. Bonjour, bonjour papa. Bonjour. Merci beaucoup de m'accueillir. Donc, je suis Arnaud. Donc, je suis conseiller en vaccination. Puis, mon rôle, un petit peu là, c'est d'avoir une discussion sur la vaccination avec vous. Puis, de répondre à vos questions. Je suis avant tout là pour répondre à vos questions. Et donc, bah, je vais commencer par une première question. Vous en pensez quoi de la vaccination Est-ce que vous avez envisagé la vaccination de l'OX C'est quoi votre position par rapport à la vaccination Ben oui, j'ai envisagé la vaccination. Ouais. Je trouve que la vaccination se fait trop jeune. Ouais. Mais sinon, je viens de faire vacciner mon fils de deux ans. D'accord. Ok. D'accord. Ce que je comprends là, c'est ça que vous pensez que la vaccination c'est important, ouais. mais peut-être une, une, une crainte par rapport à quel âge on fait la vaccination. Ouais. Est-ce qu'il faut vraiment faire la vaccination à cet âge-là ou à quel, à quel âge on, on doit la faire D'accord, bah on pourra l'aborder si vous voulez, c'est bien important. Donc, vous avez envisagé de vacciner Loïc, mais un peu plus tard, si je comprends bien, c'est ça Bon, parfait. Est-ce que dans la, la vaccination, vous avez certaines questions par rapport à bah, c'est quoi la maladie contre laquelle on protège C'est quoi les vaccins qu'on donne Est-ce que vous avez des, des questions spécifiques un petit peu ben, les vaccins en soi ne me dérangent pas. Ouais. C'est vraiment l'âge à laquelle on est D'accord. Donc, ouais. c'est vraiment. Je les ai toutes données à. Je vais te faire faire. C'est vraiment. Okay. Okay. C'est un mois que j'ai fait. Ouais. Ok. C'est une question aussi d'anticorps. Que, que ouais. Les enfants, ils jeunes, les anticorps ne sont pas tous développés. D'accord. C'est une chaîne qu'on a mis autour de nous. Ok. Parfait. Je n'envoie pas mes enfants en garderie. Ouais. Qui restent pas mal chez nous, ouais. puis mais j'allaite jusqu'à 18 mois. D'accord. Ok, donc à, à ce moment-là, vous pensez qu'ils sont moins susceptibles d'avoir des maladies, parce ouais. que comme ils sont à la maison, puis vous allaitez, ça les protège aussi, c'est ça Oui. D'accord. Donc c'est vrai que vous avez raison, hein, vous avez raison, parce que 
le mode de vie, bah, l'exposition aux maladies change en fonction du mode de vie aussi, bien sûr. Hein, c'est vrai que la garderie bah, les explose à beaucoup plus de, de maladies. Et puis l'allaitement, bah, on sait que ça, ça protège aussi. Ça donne des anticorps de la maman aussi au bébé. Ah, donc ça, tout ça, c'est des bonnes stratégies pour protéger les... Donc à ce moment-là, est-ce que ça vous intéresse un petit peu qu'on parle un petit peu, parce que vous parlez d'anticorps, de, de, de voir un peu comment ça fonctionne un vaccin. Comment ça fonctionne l'immunité, comment ça fonctionne un vaccin. Ouais. Ouais. On va peut-être commencer par ça, et comme ça on verra un petit peu pourquoi on vaccine. Alors qu'est-ce que vous, vous avez compris du fonctionnement d'un vaccin Est-ce que vous ne pouvez pas me parler d'anticorps Qu'est-ce que vous avez compris un peu de... Moi je pense qu'il injecte les médicaments sans le noyau. Ouais. Le, le, pas le médicament, le, la bactérie sans ouais. le noyau. Ouais. Et ton corps crée des anticorps face à... Ouais. Ah, ça. C'est bien, c'est bien. Ouais. C'est ça que j'ai compris. Ouais, c'est ça. <rire> Est-ce que vous connaissez le terme d'antigène Mmh. Ouais, d'accord. Mmh. Ah, bon, alors, on est l'anticorps. Bon, vous avez raison. Hein, donc, il y a des microbes, hein, on va appeler ça des microbes, donc des bactéries, des virus, des fois des champignons aussi, mais surtout des bactéries, des virus, qui, qui causent des maladies. Et puis, effectivement, hein, vous avez raison. Hein, donc, ces bactéries, ces virus, il y a différentes parties. Et à la surface des virus ou des bactéries, on a euh, ce qu'on appelle des antigènes. Donc, c'est des petites molécules. Hein, qui sont reconnus par le système immunitaire. Ces antigènes-là, ils vont entraîner la production par le système immunitaire d'anticorps. C'est ce qu'on appelle les soldats, on parle des ouais. parle des petits soldats, les anticorps. Et donc, c'est ces anticorps-là qui vont protéger contre les maladies. Donc, pour s'immuniser, on a deux façons de s'immuniser pour produire les anticorps. Soit, ben, on a la bactérie ou le virus qui pénètre dans notre organisme, puis à ce moment-là, le système immunitaire reconnaît les antigènes, fabrique des anticorps, puis une fois qu'il a fabriqué les anticorps, ça va détruire les bactéries et les virus, puis on, on est guéri. Le problème de ça, c'est que si le, la bactérie ou le virus il est très méchant, ben des fois on est très très malade, ou des fois on meurt avant d'avoir des anticorps. Ouais. Enfin, c'est le principe. Et donc le principe de la vaccination, c'est de mettre dans l'organisme les antigènes, donc ce qui est à la surface du microbe ou de la bactérie, mais sans... Alors, vous parlez du noyau, donc c'est vrai que le noyau, puis sans toutes les autres parties du microbe ou de la bactérie qui causent la maladie. Simplement, l'antigène qui est responsable de la fabrication des anticorps, on fabrique des anticorps, on n'est pas malade, et quand on ingère, on est contaminé par la bactérie ou le virus, ben, nos anticorps vont aller se fixer sur les antigènes à la surface de la bactérie ou du virus, puis ça va neutraliser la bactérie ou le virus, puis on n'est pas malade. Donc c'est ça le principe un peu de la, de la vaccination et de l'immunisation. Okay. I wonder if any if any of you would like to ask Arno a question or make an observation. What we saw there was the first two parts of that ask, offer, ask. We saw the ask a lot of asking and then quite a solid chunk of offering. And you can imagine where Arno is going next. Mm. I think I'm just wondering if um, Arno, what about you? Have you got any reflections to offer? Oh yes, thank you. Uh, maybe uh, I could share with you the, the the history of this this video, and it was very uh, extremely useful uh, this experience because. Uh, 10 to uh, 15 first minutes of the interview with parents. 
they're trying to explain me um, why they don't want to vaccinate their child before the age of two and try to find so, some explanation with the immune system, uh, no antibodies before two years, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, with this approach, I try to build new knowledge with them about what is immunity, how it works, and by them, themselves, they are correct, their misinformation. But after, they are coming to their real concern and why they should not vaccinate the, the first child. And the mother said to me, well, yeah, my first child have um, uh, a cardiac uh, dysfunction and malformation. So I don't want him to have fever. And I know that vaccine causes fever. So I don't want to, to give him the vaccine. And so I acknowledge that I feel, okay, so you are really concerned about what could cause harm to the child. I say, yes, I think I understand. I, I also understand that vaccine could cause fever. And I just asked mother, but are there something else that could cause some fever to your child? And mother said, wow, yeah, disease. And after it down, <laughs> I, 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 I said nothing else. And the mother himself said, oh, oh my God, yes, I should not have Two or three minutes after, it's okay. I'm going to take my appointment for this, my for this my son, yeah. and she herself uh, make a decision that makes sense for him, for 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 her, and so it's why it's important at the beginning not trying to correct the misinformation because sometimes it just they are trying to explain their decision, but they don't want to give the real reason of their concern. They're trying to find some theoretical explanation. And, and so it's very important not to move in this way too fast with parents and trying to come back on basic knowledge, build new knowledge, and after that we make sense for parents. And it's possible because we have a trustful relationship because we are not developed reactants at the beginning. Fantastic. I mean, there's, there's this sense what listening to that story and watching the video of you getting out of the way. Wow. Yeah, it's, wow. it's very important at the beginning also. Mother tell me all the good things she thinks she do for the child. I breastfeed her. I don't put him in daycare center. That's and right. Yes. And we, oh, uh, instead of said, yes, good thing, but... No, it's good thing. Yeah, you're yeah, right. It. It's good thing to protect your child. Got it. And and after we're going to exp trying to explain why is not enough, but not at the beginning. Just yeah. build the transfer relationship and say, yes, you are good mother. You are good parents. Okay, yeah. so let's go and try to build this new knowledge that's going to change your mind about immunization and that's going to make sense for you to take yeah. your decision. And, you know, I don't know, um, I'm going to ask Angela to bring Patrick on now because just, to, Patrick, if you could just offer a few comments before we move on. The chat column is full of the most wonderful observations from people and it's going to be fun to, to, to look at that afterwards because it's a good learning opportunity for people that we're teaching to look at this webinar and look at that video. Um Patrick, Patrick, you're also in Quebec, yeah. Yeah, and you're a, I am. You're a you're a psychologist and colleague of 
Arno's? Uh, I'm working with Arno, and by training, I, I studied in sexology, but uh, I worked for many years uh, with the MI training and supervision, and uh, also team with Arno in this uh, project of uh, promote uh, best practice in vaccination. So, yes. And, and Patrick, can I ask you a question? You know, you look at, you look at Arno's interview there, and it looks so simple. <laughs> It, it looks very simple what he's doing. I don't know how did it's, it, it's from the heart. It's um, I I think it's uh, well with with the experience I had with with training and when I see Arno, I, I think it's uh, it, it's it's more it's more than a techniques. It's it's a relationship that you want to build and and i really appreciate the the article from from uh, terry moyers where she explained the importance of the relationship without it we can go to the mechanics of of mi and and the two of it, it it's quite important so we didn't uh, attend of an exchange only on the three steps which is ask uh, share and ask or ask offers ask it it's not step to do it, it's a way of being with the yeah. other person that was absolutely and and, and, yeah. I, and i really appreciate with the first and the last ask to taking time to really let space for the person to really express their concern and and their needs about uh, having information so the the the, the patient feel that they have an open space and a safe space to express what the what yeah. their concerns. Yeah. Yeah, and and Arno is really looking like he's loving them and taking delight in the conversation. Yeah, exactly. It's quite striking. Now, look, um, people, it's 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 ten past the hour, and I think this might be a nice transition point to do two things. First of all, just Thank you so much, Arno, for that incredible video and for your observations and for getting up so early in the morning. Um, and thank you, Patrick. Um, Angela's put the link to the Guardians of the National Treasure, which is all focused on the well-being of children. Okay, so mm. don't hesitate to dive in there. But I think now might be the time to hand over to Angela and Russell to lead us into, I won't say anything more about the guardians of the national treasure. I was gonna end with that, but I've said it all and go for it people. But um, I think this is a good opportunity to hand over to Russell and with Angela's help, move towards a, a sort of Q and A maybe if that's what Russell wants um, or straight into the panel where we are going to look at this question. If this is an alternative to a corrective approach to misinformation or misunderstanding, what are the wider implications outside the door, as Judith or Joel put it, for the wide-ranging misinformation and disinformation that's out there? And... Um, Russell, can I hand over to you and Angela? Is that okay? Uh, Joel, is it okay with you if we move on? Uh, yeah, yeah. Though I, I just wanted to put one more twist into your question, Steve. Go for it, man. 
when we're talking about COVID and, and Judith had me thinking about this and we're talking about where we're living in the middle of an experiment in vaccination. So, so every bit of information is informing what we think we know and we're ruling things in and we're ruling things out. How do you, and, and, and Arno, I greatly appreciated the, the, the interaction that you had with that couple. And, you know, but how do you do this in a way when the information you have is only what you know now, but you realize that might change because there's so much uncertainty? That people will say, how do you know that? With, with MMR and other things, we have a, there's a pretty good, you know, body of evidence that supports the information that you're giving. But I imagine some people's hesitancy is, how could you possibly know? Because this is all brand new. Yes, it's, it's, a, <clears throat> it's a very important thing. And I think that if we want to build a trustful relationship with a patient, we should be very transparency. And we should give uh, all the information that we have and not give information that we haven't. And we should be uh, agree with patients that if we have no information, yes, we have no information. For example, in the co for the COVID vaccine, uh, I had some discussion with a hesitant patient about the COVID vaccine. And he say, oh, the COVID vaccine is not the solution because it's not going to change anything in the circulation of the virus. I said, yes, you're right. We have no data on the mm -hmm. impact of the COVID vaccine in the transmission of the virus. We know that the COVID vaccine protects very well the person who received the vaccine, but we have no data uh, if uh, the vaccine uh, has a great effectiveness uh, to decrease the circulation of the virus or to have some impact on asymptomatic person. You're right, we have no data, but if we have no data, it didn't. It doesn't mean that it's not uh, it has no efficacy. But we have no data, and I agree with you. We have no data about that. I'm not trying to explain that mm. it's going to have some impact, etc., etc. Yes, you're right. There, there is no data, and it's an evidence. And in three months, six months, we will have data, and we will could share what the uh, scientific data. Um, learn to us, but at this time we have no data. So it's very important to be very transparent with the patient and not trying to give them some information that's not based on solid scientific data. So listening in a time of uncertainty was our first webinar, Steve, if you remember, and it seems like you know the the best thing to do is to be honest when you're uncertain. Yeah, transparent and authentic. And that's shone out of uh, a lot of what Darno's been saying. Yeah. Russell? That's enough of me. Russell, Angela, yeah. it's all yours. Yeah, just before we move on to the panel, Angela, if you want to uh, uh, introduce a little bit more about the Guardians for the National Treasure, then we'll, we'll, we'll get the panelists back on. Just to say, Joel, I don't seem to have the ability to invite uh, people onto the panel. I don't know what's wrong. So I, I might give you a few names to invite people okay. on. Okay, and I've got nothing more to say about the Guardians because I've said it all. And as Margot, as Margot said, as she left the room, go for it. Okay, so we want to get... Uh, um, 
maybe to kind of start off on that bigger question that you asked Steve about what the wider efforts are, maybe we'll get uh, Stefan to join us again. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Stefan, Stefan's can... already a panelist. You should be able. Yeah, to... he's already a panelist and. Uh, Stefan, I understand you've been the most important S. Rolnik in the world. Um, we wanted to ask you. About time, uh, <laughs> <laughs> we wanted to ask you a big question about uh, the, the the wider efforts to address uh, misinformation and, and, and disinformation as well. I guess around something like COVID vaccination. I know this is something you've been you've been looking at, uh, and and also if there's anything we can learn from that that we could bring back into the door to the one to one situation. What what do you have to say about that? So, um, firstly, thanks for having me on. And like I said earlier, I realise this world is already saturated with uh, S-roll mix, but um, <laughs> I hope there's there's room for one more. Um, so just to give people a background, I spent the last year running a campaign called Stop Funding Fake News. And it basically did uh, what it said on the tin. So we were pushing back against the rising tide of misinformation and disinformation. And there's a distinction there, but I'm going to use them interchangeably. And the way we did that was by demonetizing and ultimately dismantling fake news sites uh, in Europe, in India, and of course, in the US. And during my time researching this area as part of the campaign and in conversations with friends as well, I've obviously learned a hell of a lot about how not to push back against people's opinions and which brings me to this, which is obviously I've been thinking a lot about the work of my dad, who is also on this panel, and Bill Miller and others about how elements of MI and behaviour change might be comparable to people who have been discussed on this panel who aren't full, full blown radicalised, but are on the path down to radicalization or at least immersion in conspiracy theories. And um, obviously don't tell my dad this, but I basically realised there might be something to this whole uh, MI thing. Um, and I, basically, <laughs> I can help myself. I basically, I've identified kind of two areas and two elements to kind of focus on here when it comes to how can correcting fake news cause more harm than good. And the first one is algorithmic, which is, is slightly niche, but I'm just going to touch on it anyway, even if it's slightly outside of the remit of this discussion. And the other one is human which is where kind of MI comes into it. So firstly, the algorithms. I mean, our research showed pretty conclusively that engaging with, so with misinformation on social media is almost always a bad thing. And this is because big tech companies have designed their algorithms to amplify conflict because it keeps us on the platforms for longer and it makes them more money, which is uh, their purpose. Mm -hmm. And for those of you crazy enough to have been following the US elections closely, you'll realize that Joe Biden's campaign strategy did a really good job of incorporating this. But the reason why this is important and the reason why I'm mentioning it, the algorithmic component is really important to get right because ultimately the best way to stop the spread of misinformation, like stopping the spread of a virus, is to stop people from becoming exposed to it in the first place. But obviously then it raises the question and events from around the world have shown us that a lot of people have been infected. So we have to ask ourselves the question, what do we do when someone becomes infected? And many of us, I know I have, have been in a situation where our loved ones, or perhaps for some of you, your clients have internalized fake news. And many of us have experienced the frustration 
and and the powerlessness of trying to convince someone only to find them digging in even more. So the question I had for all of you who all know loads about MI, um, is that are there any elements here that are common to both radicalization and addiction and behavior change? Following on from that, are there any MI techniques or MI spirit that we can apply in our conversations with people who have been radicalized online? And the big question for me, which I have some crazy ideas about, is how could we scale this up to meet the challenge? Because it's huge. And I'm going to stop short of answering that challenge, uh, that question, and let it percolate in people's minds. But work in this area would be super impactful because we often think of the people at the top of the radicalization pyramid, the kind of few people we see on the TV or unfortunately, increasingly larger number of individuals who will show up at their state legislatures. And someone in the comment section asked a question about the politics. I'm going to come to that um, just before I finish speaking. But underneath this kind of peak of the pyramid, there's a much larger group in the tens of millions who are kind of the subject of what we're talking about today. And they are absorbing opinions with the potential to scupper a vaccine or delegitimize an election. And one of the ideas I've been mulling over has been, I don't know how many of you have heard about troll farms, these kind of big warehouses of people, often in a foreign country, trying to spread misinformation in a kind of domestic election. Well, I've been doing a lot of thinking around how can we weaponize people and good people to go out into these localized spaces on social media and focus on spreading good information and hope and positivity through their interactions on social media? And, and another question, <laughs> what if we train these people in MI or a version of MI that's adapted to online interactions? And um, just before I finish, and I leave it to you experts to kind of school me, in MI and bring me back down to earth. Um, I wanted to leave you with a real life example of someone, a real person who we actually tracked in our research at the Center for Countering Digital Hate, which is where I worked. And it would be great if folks could kind of mull this over in the shower or on a run and to recognize the complexities and the qualities they see in their patients or in their clients and how that wisdom could be applied. So I'm just going to get this up here just to make sure. What drug are you on, man? Firing. <laughs> All of them. Right. <laughs> Good answer. So for the last two years, um, after getting home from her job at the front desk of a pharmacy in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, a woman by the name of Midnight Rutabaga was a username, would log on to her Reddit forum and post about everything from Harry Potter to e-cigarettes. And in one post, she shares an uplifting story about a girl who came into the pharmacy where she was working. And this girl was lost and she was unable to get home to her parents. And Midnight Rutabaga details how she helped her get home and how a week later, the girl's parents came into the store with gifts to express uh, their appreciation. And Midnight Rutabaga says, 
actually getting to help someone with something important felt so good. But then something changed. Midnight Rutabaga revealed to her Reddit community that she was immunocompromised and she was scared about the looming COVID-19 pandemic. After engaging with a number of posts on a conspiracy forum called Wuhan Flu, she raised concerns about the authorities trying to suppress valid information sharing. A few weeks later, in early April of 2020, we found out that she'd become the founder and administrator of an underground server which would become home for paramilitary and racist content. And on that cheery note, I um, leave you guys to wrestle this back to the relevant topic that we've been discussing and uh, bring me back down to earth. Steve, he's a cut, he's a cut, he's a chip off the old block, isn't he, Steve? <laughs> Just chock full of complexity. Stefan, man, that was that was brilliant. I mean, you've given us a whole new topic for a webinar that we can unpack. Yeah. I, well, I'm, I can only apologize. No, don't. No, don't. don't. No. I mean, there I, I think I'm looking at our audience and the people here, and there's so many angles we could come at that. You know, well, and I, I I did see somebody um mention something that I didn't want to let slip which was about how this is tied up in people's politics. And I wonder if that's something that people have experienced with patients when it comes to vaccines and how this might be tied up in politics. And there's some uh, interesting social psychology research that goes beyond, far beyond my knowledge. But just in terms of the politics, um, people are absorbing these, and not everyone, but there's a lot of these opinions that, people form that are based on kind of fake news or BS um, come from a vast network of disinformation and misinformation super spreaders across social media platforms. And these people are motivated by clicks, money and politics in that order. And they're deliberately trying to sow doubt about vaccines as part of a broader push to delegitimize institutions and expertise. And this has been facilitated as we've seen by the inaction of social media companies because this is making them money and um at the center for countering digital hate we were monitoring um facebook groups that were i think it was this is the worst list but um islamophobic anti-migrant anti-semitic climate change deniers like anti-vax all these things and when the pandemic hit, what we saw was all of these groups immediately repurpose. And it was like the COVID pandemic was just like the perfect blueprint. It was already there. It was perfectly laid out. And the reason why that is, is because all of these ideologies are based on populist stories. And so it's the idea that wealth, power and influence our limited resources and we in the in-group are having them limited by X out-group. So, you know, vaccines and anti-Semitism or climate change, it might be liberals trying to reduce your power or it might be Jews controlling the media or migrants taking your jobs. And so it's really interesting that someone mentioned politics because a lot of this stuff in terms of people's opinions about 
anti-vax will be tied up in their politics and in their social psychology mm. probably as well. But that's beyond me yeah. again. Yeah, I'm, I mean, just to kind of bring it all back around, I'm fascinated with the conversation and I'm aware of two things, the depth and the breadth of what you're talking about and the amount of time we have on the clock. Um, I'd love to talk with you more about this personally. Um, but the thing about the thing about the vaccine hesitancy and vaccines, when it gets blended with personal philosophies and religious beliefs and ideologies, and it becomes something that divides people, you know, it, it's a strange thing. When when the COVID virus, even here in Australia, it's a political issue. It has you know states divided, and and. And in somewhere the humanity and what's best for the people gets kind of pushed aside because people are trying to get power, wealth, or notoriety. Yeah, look, um, I think this is get this should be a subject of another webinar, John. Yeah, I think you're right. I do too. Yeah, right no, I'm getting drawn in, Stefan. Yeah. <laughs> I wish we could get Bill Miller in, but I also know that Stefan's arranging to chat to Bill about this. But what Stefan hasn't spoken about, which we've run out of time for because we're on the half hour now, is what can be done positively about this. And I, I know from chatting to Stefan, he's got some interesting ideas he wants to put to Bill and clarify how MI consistent they are and what they might actually look and feel like in, in a very practical sense of developing as, I mean, an army of young people who are able to enter this, these, these different media. But we don't have time for that. And Russell, I hand, you know, we are, we've hit the half hour. Yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, Stefan's, every now and again, somebody comes along and just blows your mind about the big questions and Stefan's done that, but it probably leads us into another webinar. I would love to continue this and maybe get Bill in, as you say. Uh, I'm wondering, in the, the half hour we've got left, we, we we use it for an informal chat. Usually, you know, people will come and join us and and uh, and share some views. And we had some 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 great comments throughout the the chat as we go along. From from Peg Dundon was one. Uh, I think we, we we tried to invite her in, uh, Joel. Yeah, yeah, she can come in. She's yeah. Before you go. I want Arno and Pat. I know Arno's an incredibly busy clinician. I want you to feel you can jump off and say bye. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. you want, you know, it's been yes. brilliant having you. Stay here if you want to, and if you leave, um, I was going to break into French, but I better not. Arno. <laughs> I'll speak but, to you yeah, too. Yeah. But uh, yeah, thanks, Patrick and Arno. Uh, uh, stay as long as you want. Uh, this, yeah. is just a, this is an informal half hour where people just drift away and yeah. just get, you know, have a chat. So, Peg, you, you'd mentioned earlier that uh, you had developed a model which you shared a description of in the chat. Uh, maybe you've got a few words to say about how, how that's been going for you. You know, how have you found it? You know, um, how does it link with what Arno was saying about what he's been doing? It, consistent with what Arnold was saying, uh, what, what we've done in the VA is had uh, trained uh, health behavior coordinators and a few healthy living staff intensively in MI. We have a three-day intensive training, and then they go out and uh, help the clinicians in a much briefer way. So our goal is really to help primary care physicians in there and clinicians in their brief encounters incorporate some elements of MI. 
And we're trying to help people uh, use these skills in their interactions around vaccines. So this is a tool developed mostly by Michael Goldstein. Some of you may know Michael as a, as yeah, a long-term mentee. Yeah, I remember him fondly. Yeah. And, you know, trying to help people be MI consistent, just as Arnold was in his, uh, his conversation with his patients. So our, our thinking at this point is, you know, a tool is just a tool um, and it's not going to be particularly compelling unless we can really help follow up with coaching. So we're starting to look at trying to make some video samples of interactions, much like the one that you shared uh, and trying to help our field staff across the system uh, help clinicians practice uh, having these conversations before they really get into them. Thanks, Peg. Um, any, anybody, any comment to make? And, and Arno, uh, does that sound consistent with uh, what you've been doing in your practice? Yeah, yeah. Uh, we uh, conducted some training uh, also for vaccination counselor. So for the vaccination counselor, we have a very high level of training because we want them to be expert in, in immunization, also expert in a motivational approach because they are going to meet every parent in Quebec. Uh, and we are also conducting training for nurses that uh, are practicing in uh, the vaccination center to, to have the same approach with the parents when, the, when they come to, um, to the appointment with the child for, to receive the vaccination. And uh, for the vaccinator, it's also important to be the same approach and in the same respectful approach when the, the child will receive the vaccine. And I work also with uh, UNICEF and USCDC to develop some training uh, for healthcare professionals uh, in vaccine hesitancy to help them to manage hesitancy with patients and parents. And we are going to start a, a pilot study in Romania with this approach to test how it could be helpful for healthcare professionals to use a motivational approach with hesitant uh, patients. And maybe if I could make a, a comment uh, on the amazing work of Stefan, uh, we are very often faced of uh, parents we have, we are, uh, they are victim of the misinformation, of the fake news, etc. And uh, in vaccine hesitancy, we know that debunking myths is very difficult. Because uh, I think you know, uh, as in my expert, that changing his mind is the most difficult thing to do. So uh, it's very difficult to try to debunking myths. So uh, one of the approach in Quebec is to have this educational session at birth with parents and trying to, to have some open discussion and to give them the good, inform good information about immunization before they are, they are starting, they are searching on internet about immunization because it's at the birth of the child. Sometimes parents didn't know anything about vaccines. So we are, have uh, inoculation at birth with some good information and trying to make them uh, immunized against misinformation and disinformation that they, they could see after when they are searching so, for information. So it's one of the way that we're trying to manage that with the, uh, the Quebec program. And second thing, maybe according to the EMI approach, 
we know that to change the mind is very difficult and to change some myths and uh, correct misinformation is very difficult. But one way to do that, it is with emotion. And uh, sometimes to change the mind is with emotion. And if we're able to establish a trustful relationship and to put humanity into our relation, maybe it could be helpful to change the mind of a people if it if he could feel that we want the best for him, and maybe it could be most powerful with human relationship instead of a technical um, fake news etc on internet, and it could be very helpful to put humanity uh, human relationship uh, and email could be a very powerful approach to do that to establish partnership, trustful relationship, and, uh, and to try to fight ag against all these fake news, etc. But it's difficult because it's face-to-face uh, -face interaction. Uh, it's not, it's uh, very difficult to spread everywhere. But in Quebec, with the programs that we meet every parent, uh, it could be a part of the, the solution. And thank you, Stéphane, it was very uh, incredible what you are already said, and it's very, very interesting. Adam, I was, sorry. I, I was just thinking earlier when you were talking, Arno, and, and then when Stefan was talking, sort of like a, a formula for something that doesn't work is authority times information equals reactance. <laughs> you know, when I'm using my authority to deliver information, then what that's going to do it could infringe on the personal liberty liberty that somebody might feel and you get pushback. Which and, and as a supervisor told me years ago, if I'm doing therapy with somebody and we're arguing personal philosophies, there's not a lot of change happening. Stefan, you want to make a comment? Yeah, no, I just um I I mean I just wanted to basically echo or steal and repeat everything that's um just been said i think the uh the the analogy of inoculating people which has been mentioned a little bit on the comments as well and was just referenced there is a brilliant one and one that um i've been stealing and using in in papers for kind of for prospective clients and that we used to circulate internally and because as you mentioned the truth is debunking doesn't doesn't work in the way that it's sold you know there's and, and I want people to be super mindful of this in their own lives when they're digesting the news or listening to big tech companies. Big tech companies focus on debunking because they know it doesn't work. And if they focus on that, they don't actually have to invest the time and the money in dealing with the problem. Um, and so then we come to what do you do when someone has digested that or been infected with that particle of misinformation? And Joel, this relates to what you were saying and, and Arno as well. I heard a quote the other day, which I'm gonna steal because it's brilliant. And it's one of those ones that I'm gonna reuse until everyone I know has heard it a million times, which is the best response to a lie is not a fact, it's a deeper truth. And I think that's essentially what you were getting to in terms of a deeper truth is something that hits to us at the emotional level and the gut level. And a quote is all well and good, but I'm a political animal and I want something that I can scale up and operationalize and roll out and institute. And I know that's not very MI spirit, <laughs> but you know, that's the nature of my background. And so just thinking about 
what that deeper truth is when it comes to vaccines. I know for like young people, because, you know, my sister, she's she's in university in a second year. And we, we talk about, you know, the handful of her friends that are, you know, deciding not to take the vaccine on the authority of someone who knows nothing about science. What, what appeals to them? And I think for, for young people, it's the excitement of the prospect that scientists have just pulled this one out of the bag and given us a kind of get out of lockdown free card and we just need to take this vaccine and then our future's out there, you know, waiting for us. And so I think, Joel, something you said made me think about this, which is that how we engage will differ, differ culturally. And it's really important, as I imagine is, it is with MI, that part of engaging with people is accepting that you can only scale this up you know a certain extent because actually what you need and what you can do now with social media is localize and regionalize your messages as well so that's how the kind of the convergence of the kind of clinical and algorithmic worlds kind of combine in that way there's one other thing that i'm going to totally rustle please you can just tell me to knock it off i want to swing it back around to something that, that peg had me thinking about which was the, the, the helpfulness of, in a, in a situation like a veterans administration setting where you have a, a group of professionals that have been trained that are out on the floor interacting with, with some of the veterans in a particular way and other people, other professionals watching them. So the, 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 the exposure and the learning that goes on, even though they haven't been directly trained. They're seeing something different happening. And Alessandro was pointing that out too, that, you know, people look and go, what are you doing? I've never seen that before. Why did you ask that question? I, that just had me thinking, Peg. I, it's yeah. kind of an unintended positive effect, maybe. Well, and we've trained over 40,000 people. So uh, hopefully there's a lot of that going on. Hopefully so. Incredible. I mean, I've seen that in hospitals where I've done MI training that people get curious about what are you doing and why don't you do it like that? And, and that creates a little, a little interest where they want to know more. Yes, it's very interesting, Joel, your remark. Uh, according to my experience, uh, very often parents feel that they are very judged because they don't want to vaccinate the child. And uh, very often, after my intervention with parents, they, they said to me, it's the first time that I meet a healthcare professional that didn't judge me to not vaccinate my child. And uh, I acknowledge that I want the best for my child. It's the first time. And uh, I have an experience with a mother in my neonatal unit uh, who was an anti-vax mother. Uh, and uh, didn't want to vaccinate all his children and didn't want to vaccinate the premature infant that was in my unit. And after a one-hour discussion with her using the motivational approach, uh, I said to her, okay, thank you so much to have this open discussion with me and to, to be agreed to have this discussion with me. And uh, I let you thinking about what, all the questions that we have uh, have a discussion and I will respect your decision because I know you want the best for your child. And this mother was interviewed by a journalist that make an article and she said to the journalist, this sentence, it was all the gold of the, of the world for me. 
because it's the first time that a healthcare professional recognize that I am a good mother, wow. even if I don't want to vaccinate my child. And uh, as you already said, there is a polar polarization in the population between pro and against vaccines. And uh, people against vaccines are feeling they are the wrong people. And if we don't uh, want to feed this polarization, we should be agree that it's normal for people to have some fears, to have some concern about immunization. And we should be agree with them. Okay, you have some fear, you have some concern. It's normal. It's normal to think about our decision, to, to see the pro and cons before decision. It's normal. We should be agree with that. And you are not a bad people because you are not want to do what uh, the government say to you. You are thinking. It's normal to think by ourselves. But we are only here to have this discussion. And I will respect your position. And in this way, there is less reactance if people feel that they, are, they are don't judge at the beginning of an intervention. Because if at the beginning of the intervention, they feel that you think they are bad, you are, we are going nowhere. Wow, Arno, and if, if you, it's an incredible story. If you get a chance, Arno, before you go, put the URL for that article into the chat line. Yeah. Because uh, I bet you people are going to be interested in that. I've had a look at that article. It's quite fascinating. You, you know, Steve and, and, the, and, and Russell and, and Ange, you know, it seems like in these webinars, there's some continuing emerging con ideas that come up. And one of them is this thing around, as Steve labeled it the other day, last webinar, compassion and curiosity, supporting autonomy, listening being the at the heart of all of this and and coming from a very per, genuine per, unique um you know person-centered place yeah i you know and and affirmation yeah um alan zuckoff's just posted a comment mm. i agree you're a loving parent trying to do the best for your child is an example of a deeper truth that can change minds and then alan asks and and we could easily bring him in here you know i think it'd be lovely to see oh, i think i can i just, to, can I just say, alan has asked what i think it's a critical question joe what is the deeper truth about those who are radicalized and caught up in disinformation what might the deeper truth be? I think um, I saw Stefan smiling. Have you got any ideas, Stefan, before Alan chats to us? Um, I think he disappeared. No, no he didn't. There he is. I got him. Yay. There he is. Well, as, um, as Dad's been instructing me to do for the, few, the couple of decades or so I've been on this planet, I'm going to stop uh, emitting and listen to what other people have to say on this because I'm open-minded to it. <laughs> oh, that's a cop-out. But it's a great question. It's a cop out, Steph. But it's a great question, Alan, and that's uh, why we thought we'd we'd bring you in. Notice the URL to Arnaud's uh, article, to the article there. Thanks. Hey, Steph. Alan. Thanks, Arnaud. Oh, hi, Alan. What do, what do you reckon it might be? I think it's a very powerful and important question. What might the deeper truth be? Well. I, I, you're going to say you're going to say that I'm copying out, but that was really not intended as a 
rhetorical question. It was really intended as a direct question to Stefan yeah. because yeah, I think our expertise right, is, in, is in the process. Yeah. Uh, Stefan, your expertise is in the subject matter. This is the world that you're, you've been living in and, and working in. And it would be, I think, odd in some ways for, for, for me to try to say, Here's, you know, here are the deeper truths about the people that you are trying to help when you're the one who has been deeply involved in trying to help them. So I wonder if you would be willing to, to sort of risk uh, you know, that, that taking a shot, you know, when you think about the people that you've tried to engage with or you, and, and, and sort of see things differently, uh, any, what your thoughts are about what, what, under, what lies beneath their, you know, the, the hold that this, you know, propaganda and disinformation has on them. Um, Thanks for uh, holding me accountable here, Alan, and actually uh, challenging me to answer the question. Um, there's, there's, there, is, there is research and thinking and stuff that's been done on this, and I'm still acquainting myself with it, so I'm not wanting to kind of mislead people into thinking I'm an expert. But um, my background before this area was in um, kind of frontline politics, and so I have absorbed some stuff from that time. And I, I always think of... Um, during my time working on the, the campaign, trying to dismantle these misinformation websites, one of the most um, troubling encounters I had was with a website who we were having a lot of success with. And just to be clear to people, the way we did this was um, perfectly above board. We just, because of the way digital marketing works, we informed brands and advertisers when their advertising money was inadvertently funding these sites by programmatically appearing there. Um, and that's a whole technical thing that we can avoid for this discussion. But basically, there was a site that we were that we were targeting. Um, it was a it was a British site. Uh, lots of anti-migrant stuff, anti-Muslim stuff, and um, we were having a lot of success. And then the editor of the site posted an article where he detailed the stress and anxiety that he was now faced with after his income had been pulled from um, from the site. And and most people in in my industry that's you know you, you get the beers out and you start kind of celebrating at that point but it I've, it's kind of stayed with me a little bit and and um I spent a lot of time mulling it over and wondering why that made me kind of feel so troubled and it was because it humanized these people it reminded me that these people are they're almost always men with with exceptions but that the vast majority are men um and and white heterosexual men as well and they all have mothers and families and brothers and, you know, best friends and old primary school teachers who cared for them. And I always think of, um, there's a really great politician in America and I won't try and um, recall, recall her name, but she gave a speech after a school shooting where she urged um, people who'd been kind of taken in by white supremacists to come back and say that you will still be here, come back. You know, we, we, there's still someone who loves you, who's waiting for you. And that really resonated with me. And I think you could point to loads of different things, but I think the decline in community and purpose, jobs that, um, you know, that, that men used to do, like manual jobs that men used to do and used to give them a sense of purpose. And now there's a kind of crisis of masculinity where men don't understand that 
you know, feminism is for them too, and that it's not something that's kind of robbing them of, of their of their power and of their dignity. And I think we've have we have a crisis of dignity, and I think people find um, respect and comfort in in these communities. But in terms of how they end up in these communities, I think um, partly it's because people are so exposed to it. And I certainly felt it when the COVID pandemic hit. I felt that kind of authoritarian impulse. And I, and I think it's actually quite interesting if we don't see these people as separate people who have ingested this viral particle. But if we put that metaphor to one side, realise that the the kind of, there's, there's a viral particle that sits within all of us. I don't know what the term is for those viruses that are suppressed and occasionally flare up again. But we kind of all have that within us and we all have those, you know, especially guys, you... you you internalize all the messages that society gives you. And I think to stop seeing them as individuals who just have wrong opinions, but see them as versions of ourselves in a different time and in a different place um, is a really good way to humanize them. But obviously my old job, it was kind of, it was important to be effective to kind of, you know, not do that work to humanize them because at the same time, I don't want, I don't want to spend my 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 job and my niche is not to spend time humanizing racist misogynists and fascists you know there's 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 times when it's important operationally to do that but I don't want to lose sight of the fact that the import the really important thing about this industry is that we're protecting people who are vulnerable and we're protecting people in minority communities and if humanizing people is an effective way of protecting people in those communities then then good but I don't want to come across as like a mealy-mouthed centrist who kind of to borrow the words of a soon-to-be ex-president, there are good people on both sides, you know. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know if that counts as a cop-out. <laughs> Alan? Uh, am I supposed to respond to that? <laughs> you, you can't, I, I, if you want to. <laughs> yeah. um, I'm, I'm also seeing, the, the, really interested in, in, in those sorts. I mean, what I resonated with most Stefan was, you know, wanting dignity, wanting, res wanting respect. Um, and, and, and I, I understand and, and empathize. I think, well, I, I've had a longstanding concern about the overlap about doing MI in political contexts. And some of, some of that is being brought out actually in, in what you've said. Um, because uh, there, there, there are places to, to focus on humanizing, you know, there's a place for humanizing those who, who are suffering, and then there's a, uh, a place for putting the emphasis on those who are most vulnerable and, and not concerning ourselves quite as much with those who are doing the harm. Uh, and of course, if you're doing MI, you have to be committed fully to humanizing uh, the, the, the person you are doing MI with. Um, and the, 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 the idea of you, you are, when you're doing MI, you're serving the individual you're, you're doing MI with. And if your loyalty is anywhere else, then you shouldn't be doing MI. That's, that would be the, the strong statement from an ethical position that I would take. Um, and so how do you bring MI to bear when you are not fully committed to the individual before you as the beneficiary of the MI that you're doing? 
I, I just want to leave one comment there because that is a dilemma I haven't solved. But Alan, I think a good example of that is if you've ever been a, a political canvasser who goes out on the doorstep and knocks on doors, I'll leave it as everyone's homework and a challenge to try and think of what's your reflective listening statement when a 60-year-old man in his dressing gown thinks we should euthanize everybody over the age of 70, right? You know, when you're faced with people with remarkable opinions in politics and canvassing is a listening exercise, right? You're knocking on doors, finding out what people care about in their local areas. And I would kind of swan up to the door and think I'll do all my MI techniques I've overheard in dad's workshops. And then someone says something like that. So you're concerned about overpopulation, you know? <laughs> well, so there, all, all I would say there is I wanna, I wanna call back to something Arno said that I, in, in describing his intervention that I thought was so important and I put, I put something in the chat about it, which is that very often the first objection that the parent makes to vaccination is not the real objection. And if you invest in trying to correct that objection, even if you're successful, the chances are you will not be successful. What you'll get is pushback. But even if you're successful, it will have almost no impact because that's not really what's driving the parents' hesitancy. So that the only, and the only way to discover, to find out what's the real underlying source of the ambivalence is by not challenging, by listening, creating an atmosphere of safety, Lynn Williams commented on, which is one of my favorite expressions as, as well in the chat, creating the safety in the relationship so that gradually the person becomes willing to share the real underlying concern that's keeping them stuck. And I would guess that whatever, that when that 60 year old in the dressing gown says that, part of the point of saying that is to shock you. Part of the point is to fend off what's anticipated to be an attempt to persuade him to change, right? When and I, I use a term anticipatory discord when I'm training that much of the discord we get from people is not what we've generated. It's based on their expectation of what we are going to do. And the best defense is a good offense. So they come at you with a statement that of course shocks and, and appalls and causes you to do exactly what they anticipate, what they're ready for, which is you're going to argue with them and they're already prepared to argue with you. So if you fall into that trap, you have, you've, you've essentially, you're giving them exactly what they're ready for and what they're prepared to fight back against. It's when you don't do that. It's when you don't take that at face value, but continue the conversation that the deeper, more interesting underlying truths have an opportunity to emerge. One of the one of the things, Stefan, that I was thinking about that Alan, as usual, stirs up in me his thoughts, is that for me, motivational interviewing isn't a, a way of life or a philosophy or a framework that I rely on in my day to day life and how I am as a human being. Right, motivational interviewing is a counseling approach that I utilize that resonates with a lot of values that I have a lot of previous training I have in psychotherapy. 
And what Alan was talking about was, you know, somebody comes out with a shock response and then you come back with a, a reflection to try to get underneath it. That's not necessarily motivational interviewing. You know, a good salesperson can do that. I told you, Stephen. Um, <laughs> motivational interviewing is, is kind of what Alan and I think share. It, it's how you hold the person you're working with in mind and in your heart and how you engage with them and that this is about them completely. It's not about me being right or trying to get them to see things in a different way, but it's about creating that rapport that, or that therapeutic safety to, to be able for them to wander around in their ideas and explore it without the yeah. judgment that Arnaud was talking about. Yeah, Joe, it reminds me of a recent, and it's a happy experience, so I don't mind talking about it, of a son of a, one of my closest friends with multiple substance use issues. And I was desperately on the phone, grabbing hold of him, let's have a walk, let's have a coffee. And we watched his life literally collapsing. And he kept saying to me, when are you going to do MI on me? Okay. And, and I just felt it was inauthentic, completely inauthentic. And because I hadn't really engaged with him. And um, so I, I didn't. I absolutely didn't. I just tried to engage with him and let him know that I cared about him but that was all yeah but he kept prodding me and saying where's the mi steve where's the mi well i mean you know <laughs> where's the magic where's the magic steve? yeah yeah well, <laughs> I, agree. I really i really agree with what alan said you know and, and yes. uh, i find it incredibly helpful alan that you keep consistently reminding us in such a clear way about the ethical boundaries here um you know, so thank you so much for that, Alan. It's really gold dust. And I think there are plenty of things that have been produced and things that we know about engaging people into a process of, of making some changes that have that have born out of motivational interviewing that you that people utilize that you can utilize in your work that's not necessarily motivational interviewing. I always say there's some there's MI and there's something like MI. And both can be helpful. Yeah, maybe to, to make a remark, you, you spoke about philosophy. Uh, when you look at uh, Baruch Spinoza, the, the Dutch philosopher, he said that to reemplace a feeling of a mind, you should, uh, to change a feeling of a mind, you should reemplace re it by a, another stronger. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. So it's why with Imai and also we could try to help people to reemplace the feeling of Imai by something stronger. And it's why I, I uh, spoke uh, about to build some new knowledge that makes more sense for the people to change. Because if we want to move to a direction that should make sense, uh, a deeper sense for us, so to change something is very difficult. And maybe with the, uh, as Alan uh, said, to create a, a safety uh, in the relationship and uh, to, to be able to establish a trustful relationship and a safety in the relation, it could help to move to this stronger change and to change the mind and to replace by something stronger. Because alone is very difficult. But when you have someone to help you, 
to do that. Sometimes it's, uh, it's more easy. Ch change is a process, it's not an event. Russell? Yeah, hey, Russell, we're, bring us home. Yeah, we're getting to five past three, so I guess people uh, are thinking about wrapping up now and got other things to do. I know I have very shortly, but uh, um, I, I just want to say thanks for for another you know amazing webinar. You know, and I've learned so much about the reasons why people develop uh, vaccine hesitancy. You know, the internal reasons, all the external stuff that, that Stefan's talked about. It's been really fascinating. And, and how we can address it. And I think it's given us some ideas for some other webinars, certainly one anyway, Joe, Steve and Ange, uh, uh, which we think we can get Stefan involved in. So thanks very much. And to Arno, uh, uh, you know, a fascinating guest. That was a great video example you showed earlier. I, I, I wonder if we can, uh, it'd be great to get access to that and maybe use it in some trainings at times because it was a great example of ask off or ask. It really was fantastic. So thank you so much. Alan, you know, you're always you're always great value for money. Thanks again. <laughs> Brilliant. In the figurative sense, Alan. In the yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Steve, uh, Joe, Steve, Joe, Ange, want to, any closing remarks? No, I just wanted to thank Arnaud. You know, you you came into what could be feeling like the lion's den of MI, and. Um, you know, my jaw dropped at the quality of your interview. That's all I'll say. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, I, I would, I would love for you to give us permission to put it up on the MI and Beyond YouTube yeah. channel yeah. so people can watch it. I do. My pleasure. Great example. Okay, guys. Well, I'll, you know, we'll we'll take the next step next time. Um, and so, to everybody on the webinar, I think. Um, we're going to wind up now. Bye-bye to Ludovic from France and people all over the world. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. We, yeah. yeah. I'm no, always impressed and, and, and humbled by, the, by folks hanging out with us. Yeah, and yeah, Stefan... There's 84, 84 people here, you know, still, so... Yeah, there's it's, still 84. It's Stephanie. an honor to talk, to talk to everybody. And Alan, it's great to see you. It's been a long time, and I miss you, and I'm, I'm looking forward to... To the next time. Yeah, do. Me too. Okay. Goodbye, everybody. Edinburgh. All right. Good night, guys. Good night. And Steve, Stefan. Good night, Melanie in the Philippines at 11 p.m. Wow, Wonderful. man. Wow. Wonderful webinar. Thank you very much for today. Thank you. And to Tamsin, wherever you are, Tamsin. I've got a dog with a bladder that's enormously full. <laughs> He's just sat here the whole time. Bye, everybody. All right, Steve. I'll see you next time, my friend. Good, brother. All right. Good night, Stefan. <laughs>